So welcome to another episode of The Shredder Show. Today I've got the pleasure of having Mr. Nick Gloff as a repeat offender on the podcast. So thank you very much for your time and jumping on, Nick. Well, thank you for having me. So the, today's topic of discussion, I heard Nick explain this um, a couple of weeks ago on one of his client calls, and it was I'd never quite heard muscle building broken down and explained quite in this process. And you were talking about the process of your body catching up in terms of like the adaptive response and almost your you're reaping the rewards almost of like the hard work now. I'm sure you're reaping like last month's hard work now. I've just bastardized that horribly. But um, I'm going to pass this over to Nick to, to try and explain this in process. I'm going to go down some different tangents with this because I've got some questions I wanted to ask you on this. But um, when it comes to, to muscle building then, Nick, how, how do you see it that the body progresses, say, through a bulking phase? Okay, so this is basically just a talk through on what progressive overload actually is. So I'm definitely not the first one to, to have used this or said this this way, but progressive overload is mischaracterized all the time by just thinking about it as what you're doing on the day is going to be exactly the thing that causes all the following results. Okay. That day you're trying to progressively overload quote unquote, thinking I need to have, more reps, more load moved every single time for it to still be progressive. That's not really the case. So really how it works is what we're doing with trying to build tissue. We need to stimulate all of the processes that actually have that happen. So we're stimulating biological machinery to do the thing of putting together tissue. Okay. So what we need for that to happen is we need to hit a certain threshold of stimulus to kick off the machinery for it to do that job. That threshold isn't just at the point where you have done something that you have literally never been able to do before. That is having a standout performance, which does mean something, and it does have a very high stimulus attached to it, but you don't necessarily need to have it breach past your base performance by a huge margin for you to have hit the threshold necessary for the machinery for muscle tissue building to happen. Okay. So the way that it really ends up working is it's a long protracted process. Trying to put tissue on is slow. Every session that you do is adding another iteration onto a long string of iterations that you are breaking down, hitting a certain threshold, and then having that threshold of stimulus, accumulate into what that processes have to happen between that point when you finish training to the next time that you train, that's your recovery period. During that time, you are putting on tissue. You are recovering the tissue that's been lost, that's been broken down. That is happening with the muscle tissue that you have just trained. What we're looking at as an overall progressive model is not though, seeing that we have to get a progressive stimulus, meaning past your absolute best performance ever, every time for you to hit the threshold and then following that with the small amount, the extremely small amount of actual tissue that you get laid down for every one of those training days, over time, it's an accumulation of all those tiny amounts that really gets you the muscle growth. So if you're thinking about it in this way, you don't recover entirely from most bouts of exercise within 24 hours. 
most muscle groups take much longer than that. They take a little bit more time, depending on which one you're talking about. When you're training, you are putting that damage in place and you are having to set yourself up circumstantially for you to be able to recover all of that. But that process isn't a one and done iteration every time. It's happening over a longer period of time where the entire circumstance surrounding you, what you're doing, is adding up to whether or not you put on tissue over time. So you having iteration after iteration of performances that are past threshold and the recovery processes being well-managed is what brings you the tissue. And that takes a long period of time. And with this lag time of recovery, where it's not a 24 hour single iteration one and done, that you just trained, you put three grams of muscle tissue on between the, this day when you woke up and then the next day when you woke up. And then you just do that for those specific body parts every single day that you train from now until you decide that you're done with your bulking phase. That's not really how it works. You have that damage that is going to be present. That damage usually takes a bit longer for it to actually get maintained. All of the things, the structures that have been damaged to be replaced. And then for the further adaptation to happen for you to improve those structures. Okay. So with that being a long iteration with a lag time off of every single time that you do that training, as time pushes forward, you're really recovering a couple days afterwards from what you had done a couple of days before, as well as everything in between. You're putting on that tissue in long arcs, lapses of time, and it's happening over and over in repetition, where some things are gonna be more relatively damaged at that time because you trained them more recently than, than the others. And depending on how much you actually did with work on those tissues during those training days, is going to determine just what that lag time is like. Okay. Would you say a way to look at this is almost, I don't know why I think of a cryptocurrency analogy here, but you're looking at like moving averages. So as long as you're moving average in terms of your training performance is going upwards, then that's going to be obviously the training stimulus is going to be going that moving up upwards rather than looking for like spikes of like, Oh, we hit PB today. Like it doesn't always have to be a PB. It just has to be yep. the, the bottom. You're, you're raising the floor up constantly. If that makes sense. Yes. Yes, it's the foundation that matters. It's your baseline abilities that matter rather than one-off performances. One-off performances can often be like the foot breaking down the door for you to get to that, that next level of baseline abilities. But that singular performance isn't the thing that has given you a substantial more amount of muscle tissue accrual from that period because you just had that training day. It's about having that spike of performance and then that baseline over time coming much, much closer to reaching where that spike of performance was. And then respectively, that spike of performance continues to rise up away from that baseline ability. That baseline ability raising up is what is really signifying that you're laying down tissue. Because your baseline ability is going to be exactly what you can do with the majority of the programming that you're doing for a muscle tissue the exercises themselves, and then all the other things like nervous system adaptation and all that for one-off performances, whether or not you have that spark that day, that just extra oomph that you don't usually have, the things that add up to creating that one-off performance, that's not really what it is that's bringing you up the next level directly. Indirectly, it will. But 
It's what happens on all of the rest of the work all of the time. That baseline ability, that baseline performance that you can continue to hit, which is stimulative, you're going as within a proximity of failure that we know is helpful, doing an amount of volume that we know is helpful for you, for each body part consider, uh, considered. You're not way overdoing it with the stimulus that you're doing. You're allowing ample opportunity for recovery. All of those things in place, you're going to be moving forward with that baseline. You're gonna be providing for the opportunity for those big performances to happen. But again, those big performances aren't the things that determine that next step. It's not doubling the amount of tissue that you put on. It's not even taking you from zero tissue accrual from a day that you just repeated performance last time and then doubling it right off the bat. That's also not how that works. So what I'm laying out in that framework there with all the other variables, as long as those variables are in place, you're in a proximity to failure that's actually helpful volume that is appropriate to you, using exercises that you can perform well and you're proficient at, you do well and you can progress over time with load, control, all the other metrics that we can use as progressive methods. As long as those baseline variables are on a steady rise over time, that is you accumulating tissue over time. Not just that this one day on the beginning of this month, you just did a squat session and you put another 20 pounds on the bar. Awesome, that's fantastic. That's no poo-pooing on that. But then thinking that, oh, well, I need to do exactly that again for me to continue to gain, it's not true. You having that spike in performance, that's awesome. That's breaking the foot into the door of having another level of baseline performance come out of that. Really what that big performance is leading you towards is you being able to inch your way up to making that big performance that was just an extra out of you that day, having you reach that and make that your minimum ability for the following squat sessions you come back to. That is what is indicating your actual progress, okay? And the way that this really works with the lag time in the way that I conceptualize it is there's like a step method to it where how much muscle tissue you have and how much strength you have they're tied together. They're not a direct one-to-one -one correlation though. They don't move at exactly the same time. So how it works, and I'm gesturing with my hands, which I'm sure most people are probably listening rather than watching, but what I'm doing is one hand is going up, then one is staying down. And then the other hand is going up to match it. And then that same hand that just moved, moves up again, further away from the other. And then the one that was left behind comes up to chase the other. That is how much strength that you can always repetitively use on a movement or just in general, your general strength abilities within the movements that you have as staples that are consistent within the program and the amount of tissue that you are putting down. So the amount of tissue that you have is going to be a good indicator of how much strength potential you have. More muscle tissue, the more potential for strength there is, okay? So if you have more tissue, you're gonna have a higher strength potential. So if you have a little bit more tissue, so the tissue hand is going up, but the performance hand is still down, okay? You just had that raise. The muscle tissue hand went up. Now performance is lagging behind. But with all the iterations of your training up to a helpful threshold, with all of the other variables being well controlled and in place, then this performance hand 
comes up to match it at some point. And then you still have more ability through the muscle tissue that you do have to express further strength above what that already was. Now, muscle tissue is lagging behind your strength. And then that follows each other and they chase each other through time. So they don't move at the same time. They lag behind one another. So watching for tissue gain and strength gain to happen at the same time, it does in a protracted period. But if you're looking at it at any one given time, it's going to be one is going to be a little bit behind the other, and then they're going to match, and then one's going to be a little bit behind the other one. And then it's just going to move as a tipping scale all the way up through, and you're going to be progressing over time through that. An interesting comparison to that analogy of the, the scale and sort of flip-flopping between the two, which one you're pushing. Do you see a similar sort of um, cause and effect almost from people pushing their nutrition to then drive more performance? So maybe you push carbohydrates up a little bit more and then you see performance increase a bit more and then you see maybe there's more demand because the performance has increased and you can increase the calories and almost like a, an effect from that? Yep. As long as there's enough time given between and the jumps are moderate enough that you can catch up to it in a fair amount of time. So always keeping in mind that we're trying to have some, the way I like to think about it is whenever there is a bump in macros, bump in food, whatever, fats, carbs, you bring up the amount of energy going in, you want to see that the amount that you put in, in most cases, by the energy is disproportionate to how much scale weight is gained in a short period, which is even further disproportionate from visual changes on the body, okay? So if you can achieve that, where each one is further disparate from one another, you're in a good spot. But that's exactly what happens. You start pushing up food, everything else stays, you get more energy, your performance can come up, the demand on your energy uh, your, is going to come up slowly to match that over time with all the recovery demands and everything that you're able to do within session and all the other things that you do throughout the rest of your day, because you're likely going to be more lively anyway with a little bit more food in you, as long as it's not an insane amount of food that's going in, which is going to make you lethargic at some point. That gain should be disproportionate in the amount of food that you put in to the amount of scale weight gain in that short period. Then that scale weight gain should be even further disparate from what you see on the body, because again, Putting muscle tissue down is a long protracted process where we have very, very small amounts of actual tissue laid down on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. A very small amount that is accrued during that time. So when you're adding in calories, you shouldn't be looking for like, oh, my client or me, doesn't matter, my client I'll use looks this much bigger or whatever. Like you're not gonna look for that because it's not going to be an accurate gauge of what you're doing. And if you're thinking that you're putting in food and then you're going to directly see them look bigger, especially in a surplus phase, then you're gonna be right because you gave them enough food for them to start putting on fat at a clip that is going to make them look bigger, which is not what you want because the amount of actual tissue that you can put down of muscle tissue in a short period of time where you're actually marking that off by like weekly check or bi-weekly or whatever, if you're seeing a visible change over a week to week during a surplus, likely a problem, especially if it's in the middle of that, 
If it's in the beginning phases, obviously that's going to be different. Because if you're starting from a very lean place, you're going to have a little bit more initial change and then it's going to taper off and you're going to scale it based off of how much food you can put in at the time, what they can do, their hunger signaling, everything being a little bit off kilter because they just came off of a diet phase. But within outside, outside of that transitionary period and you're into the thick of a surplus phase, there really should not be a visible change from week to week. But you should be able to continue through that long period of time that you're in a surplus phase, still being able to add food and being able to see the scale come up at a moderate to light pace while still keeping an eye on what the look is like and ensuring that you're not seeing a change week to week. Looking over very broad time is more helpful. That's quite an interesting concept and like paradigm was the way people think now is that you're inherently actually not looking to see results visually almost like you don't want to see that weekly which obviously human nature in particular from clients is they want to see oh my arms are bigger everything's bigger and it's like that can be cool but you'll probably if your arms are bigger in a week the chances are you're, you're piling on body fat like crazy which is i think the biggest mistake i see guys make um yep. when trying to get bigger is they just throw on weight for the sake of weight and then eight weeks they're too fat and they're going to die again yep Yep. And then the majority of the time during the year is spent on half dieting usually is what happens because it'll be like eight week cycles. It'll be, Oh, I'm a little too fat. It's time to cut. And then they do kind of a half ass shitty job of cutting. And then they get to a point where they feel like they're somewhat okay with looking at themselves in the mirror. They like feel like they can train with a t-shirt rather than wearing a sweatshirt for a couple of days. And then they're like, Oh, we're good. It's time to bulk again. And then they just move themselves further down the line every single time. And then a couple of years from now, you're going to be looking back and being like, wow, I actually haven't been lean in like six years. And I haven't really gotten that much bigger or stronger. I wonder what happened. Because you had about four weeks of effective work within a cut and four weeks of effective surplus for every 16 weeks that you went through in the last six years. Like... Duh. <laughs> that's that's what frustrates me is when you like one of the gyms I train at, I see the same people I've seen for like five years and they're exactly the same. And like if it was me, I'd be like, why am I doing this? Because nothing's happening. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. Um that that being said, and your question there in terms of obviously growth takes a long time. And I know it's a little bit like like it depends. Do you have a recommendation in terms of people you recommend how long they push for in terms of going for size or do you recommend people aim to get very lean at least every 12, 18 months, just to almost resensitize the body, maybe see what's there. It's obvious. Well, you covered it with, it depends. depends. Basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So major things to be looking out for is going to be what blood sugar is looking like. That's going to be a really good, easy marker for you to keep track of what blood pressure is looking like, which is a good general indicator of cardiovascular health at the time how you generally feel during the day, how your training is going, tangentially to the blood pressure and cardiovascular health, are you doing any cardio? Are you able to? Is doing your normal working sets feeling like it's cardio for you to just recover from them while you do a couple bicep curls and then you gotta sit down for three minutes? Problem, bulk went too far, much too far, okay? But if you're keeping track of those things, you know that your general health is okay. 
and you're looking at all the things that we just talked about, being able to push up food at a moderate pace, doing it only when necessary, and then looking to see that the scale weight is coming up at a very small pace, slow pace, and then seeing even lesser change visually from week to week, but you're seeing it over broad time. So say looking at it from like a month to month basis, and you can see change, you're in a good spot. And if you're doing that and you're moving at a slow enough pace, you're going to be putting on as much muscle tissue as you can with as minimal fat tissue as you can through that period. Performance is going to continue to rise and all of the things that we're looking for are going to go generally well. You get to a certain point though, after long enough of even doing it at the most, the slowest snail's pace protracted pace that you could do it, which is not what I'm recommending, by the way. It's still within, for my recommendation, it's always to be within a moderate amount of change throughout all of them, throughout time. You don't need to be working at such a snail's pace that you see absolutely nothing for a month before you make a change. It's more about being able to do it accurately to the amount of time course that it takes for actual muscle tissue to get put on and not tricking yourself into thinking that dumping more and more calories in and seeing the scale move at a high enough amount that you feel like something's happening, which is the problem usually. So that's a tangent that I'll just crush right now. Part of why we see like surplus phases go wrong a lot of times is because our measurement tools. Our measurement tools being the scale as a primary for trying to see what we're doing with our surplus. We're not all that keen on trying to see very, very small increments of increase over time that we're using aren't like super duper exact and the fact that our body weight is going to change on a day-to-day -day basis and it's not just a constant thing that makes it even harder so what people do typically is they want to see guarantee that they're moving forward and they guarantee they're moving forward by accommodating what they're doing with their body to what the scale tells them is substantial enough progress to be meaningful of which when we're really thinking about it, when you look at the scale and you see a 0.2 or a 0.4 or a 0.6 or something like that changed by pounds or even by kilograms, if you see that tiny little bit of a fluctuation that's still within your normal fluctuation of what your body weight's going to show up as on a given day, even if nothing has changed and you're at perfect maintenance, you're going to see some shift. And it's within the margin of error. So to get around that, most people end up just trying to quicken up the pace and put on enough or put in enough food so that you see a guaranteed substantial increase on the week to week, which isn't accurate to what your body can actually do with that food going in and what actual muscle tissue can be put on relative to how much energy is needed for it and what your stimulus and training is. It's just the time period of a week is not enough time for you to see substantial muscle gain. Seeing substantial weight gain during a week is entirely possible. Trying to minimize the amount of weight gain and maximize the amount of muscle tissue gain requires you to remember that you're trying to be accurate with what your body can actually do to produce that muscle tissue, supplying it with enough energy to do so, in creating the circumstances that allow it to happen, 
but you're not just throwing more gas on the fire unnecessarily just because you want to see the fire get bigger. It's not helpful. Okay. So after that tangent, I don't really remember where I was on the original point. So if you, if you have that for me, remind so, me. Something I'd be interested in your opinion was, cause this is something I tend to notice with myself uh, and also clients in terms of when going through a growth phase is that initially say you, you, it happened to me recently, like a big bump in say carbohydrates up. I always no, almost notice my body composition softens and then maybe two to three weeks in, then my body seems to fire into and gets used to almost like turning through that amount of nutrients. Is that something you see fairly common? Like almost again, you're talking about those two scales, almost like that yin and yeah. yang where you push up your food, your composition will start to go a little bit and then your body will almost catch up a little bit to the food. Yeah. I think most of the time when you have a big jump, especially in carbohydrates first after a dieting phase, the majority of what goes on is just water anyways for the beginning period. And then yes, once you get used to having that food in, that starts to lessen because the baseline starts to raise up and what your body's expecting is intake is going to adjust over that time. So that water will start to come back off. It's just a, any sort of an extreme jump with that to begin with is going to create that response. I mean, anybody's gone and had way too much food on their cheat meal during a diet, you're like, oh crap. And then you wake up the next day and it looks like you're, you didn't even diet the last like 10 weeks. That happens. And that can happen with a purposeful instead of a mistake with you going way overboard and losing your mind and then eating something you shouldn't have. It could also happen from something that was planned, but ended up resulting in the same thing, which is you eating more than what your body was able to really work through. It wasn't ready for it. It had more sodium, it had more carbohydrates, you ended up holding more water with it. And then you see the result of that immediately. And then that result, because you're not going with that, like if you were to screw up on your diet, you see that happen and then you're back on, a couple days later, it's gone, you're good. The waters came back off, you're back on track, everything's starting to kick along again. But when you're on the opposite end of a diet and you did that purposefully, you don't see that normalization for a long time. And that would be why, because you're just continuing to sustain that amount of intake with all of the pieces, parts of what that intake is, is to your body that is going to create that environment. And you will hold on to that environment until you normalize to it. What would you say are the signs that your body's almost normalized to that, like almost nutritional set point and a point where you should start to maybe incrementally take calories up again? Obviously, we, we've spoken about body weight. Is that just purely on stagnation of body weight or stagnation also of performance? Um, both. Both. I tend to hold off on food increases based off of performance for a little bit longer because of the fact that, again, with, with the step idea of how it chases, you're going to have periods of time where you're not going to be making substantial progress with performance, but you are putting on muscle tissue. And if really what the calories are for is putting on the muscle tissue, the performance is a tool for you to get that muscle tissue to be gained, but you don't need more calories directly for you to get stronger over that period of time or for you to produce more general ability. You're waiting for the amount of muscle tissue that you have to actually get accrued and get up to the point where you do have a higher strength potential for you to express it again. And then all the other variables that go into whether or not you can express strength at, at that current time. So trying to push up food 
based off of performance, most often ends up putting it in too early. And then you end up seeing more scale weight gain than what you really want to see. And then they start going downhill with their body comp a whole lot faster. If that's quickly done. If, however, it's been like a good period of time, like a good long while that nothing really has been pushed up, body weight is pretty stagnant, performance is pretty stagnant, okay, more food. Then you're likely to see a jump in both. So, and for time course on how you're going to put in food like that, it's gonna be dependent on the person and how much you feel you can give them, their body size, how hard they train, what other activities they have going on during the day, whether or not they're doing cardio, to what intensity, how much of a volume of cardio they're doing, all the other things that go into their daily intakes. That's going to determine the time course and how much per that time you're going to put in food. Makes so. complete sense. Uh, you talked about something else interesting was earlier in terms of obviously, we talked about moving up, like the moving average in terms of training performance and obviously the one-off training performances, which we're always looking for in terms of hitting PBs and things like breaking down the door. Like, do you think people are, when they break down the door with things like PBs, do you think that's just a confidence thing and then suddenly realizing what they can do? Or maybe like a new experience training with someone at a higher level who's pushed them further perhaps? I think that's two different questions there. One question would be, does this person actually have enough training experience for them to realize what they're capable of? One, and then do they, act, do they actually have that ability at all? So one side is, do they not know, which is what you just said. Do they not know when they have that experience with somebody that's better than them, they can push harder than them, that shows them no, you're not re-racking it right now because you have another 20 reps and it only just started to hurt now, you're not done. Hurt does not mean done. Done means done. And then when you actually go through that and you learn that experience, you go, oh, wow, I was really training like a Sally there. Um, I guess I have a lot of work that I could do and I could get a whole lot better than this. And then by magic, after that point, their training sessions start to get a little bit more lively. They start to actually push and then their performance jumps through the roof. That'll happen, obviously. But then there's the other side of things where they're at, they are pushing like that already and they pretty much know just about how far, like how many gears they can click on for them to go and do it. They may be missing one or two, but they're at a high enough threshold that they're just, they're cranking on it all the time. Those people, that performance jump is going to be much harder to come by. But that performance jump may come from you just losing any care of what you're doing at the moment and letting your mind shut down further for you to get those last years. And then secondarily is having all the other circumstances continue or planned out in a way that will allow you to make those big jumps. Like you undulating volume totals that you're doing over time, undulating how close to failure you're going to on the, on the sets that you do, actually do the order of exercises, your recovery variables, increases in food, increases in anabolics or something like that or better sleep and all those things, all those other things that do contribute to performance and recovery, those are gonna be more likely to be the catalyst for you having a big spike in performance rather than you just losing it and going, okay, it's time to put the pedal down because most likely that person, as an example, already had the pedal in the floor. So most often those performance uh, gains that happen with that guy or that girl, 
is from them taking something that is in their cumulative daily to weekly program of how they run their entire daily life, something in there clicks, something there changes, and then you see a big performance jump. That's often what happens. So somebody's sleep isn't that great. You get their sleep together, magically it starts going well right afterwards. There you go. Somebody's been stagnant for a while, you start putting in food, their performance goes up. There you go. You have them pushing on the same, same general pace of having a little bit of food come up, then waiting for the strength potential to come up, and then you keep doing this. You're going to have along that way on that curve some days that are just going to break the mold and you're going to have a big spike. And that just happens. There are some parts of that that aren't going to be trackable or traceable or trying to reproduce them, but there are very easy ways of figuring out how to move variables for you to reproduce those yourself. But again, those are one-time performances that you'd have to engineer everything around to make that happen rather than engineering everything in total for everything to be rising up instead of trying to taper yourself because for that person that really does have the pedal in the floor, for them, it's more so that when you're looking to get that performance baseline to start coming up, you need them to be consistently doing the same things over and over and over again for that performance baseline to come up, for performance spikes to come up, and they're already always on it, you're going to have to do a manipulation for them to have some of that fatigue that they accumulate from their training to drop off enough for them to express that higher level of ability. Because your fatigue will mask your quote unquote fitness qualities. And if you're training really hard all the time and you know that that extra gear you already have in use, the way for you to use that extra gear to get that higher peak is by tapering down everything else to allow you in one bout to be able to have that pop up higher than it was before. So that would be the two distinctions between those people and how you'd approach that. 100%. Something I'd be fascinated to ask you, uh, number one, who's the hardest person you've trained with and number two who's the hardest person you've seen in terms of training like intensity wise or anything that's like really impressed you um somebody that i have trained with who you were like holy shit this guy's on it um not really anyone to be honest i've ne i've never had a training session with somebody that blew me away that i couldn't chase um and that's partially because i don't really train with a ton of people so that's not to say that like i'm not somebody that has gone and trained with all of the pros in powerlifting or bodybuilding and then you know i'm sitting on the mountain going no nah, i train harder than all of them like that's, that's not it. It's, I just, I haven't trained with all that many people in my lifetime up to this point, And I typically do train alone. So the opportunities for me to have done that are extremely few. Um, and of the times that I have trained with people, aside from just myself that were on one-off sessions, something like that, I, no one's really blown me away. No one. So but aside from that, 
Actually, I'll, I'll give credit to my friend Jake Elgie, actually, a longtime friend, actually from like around the area that I grew up. So he was an hour away from me. We became friends in like beginning of college for me. We didn't go to the same school or anything, but met through Instagram and then became friends with some other mutual friends during that time and have been best friends since. Him, put him on a hack and he will, he will just die on a hack. The, the man is incredible. Like I've seen him do some in, insane hack squat rest pause sets that I, I wouldn't want to try and attempt, although I have. Like just watching it, you're just thinking about the whole time. Like I, I cannot, this man is in so much pain and you can see it, but he's just going and it doesn't matter. It's like, that's incredible. That has happened on more than one occasion where he's had like 10 minute rest pauses on a hack squat and just goes and just goes. So he's like the only other person aside from myself that I've seen do that. So I'll give him props on that. So there's that. And then from the outside looking in on people that can really train hard. Um, I think I'd have to give it to Jordan Peters. I think I'd have to. I was expecting Just, an answer. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that you probably were. And probably most people listening would, would think so as well. But I'd have to give it to him because of all people, of all other people in like, especially the high level bodybuilding world that put up their training and everything, it's kind of more like highlight reel type stuff all the time. And in those high re highlight reels, it's more so showcasing what they look like while doing it rather than like, this is the lift. This is what we're doing. This is why And here it goes, which resonates a whole lot more with me because you can create a special fancy edited highlight reel video where you're doing a 225 bent over row and making it look really good because you have a tank top on or you're wearing no shirt and you're just doing it and looking like you're trying to work hard. Or you have somebody like JP who is doing a dead stop row from the floor with five plates and is just doing it. That is much harder training than somebody that is arguably going to be a better bodybuilder, quote unquote, in the competitive world, that is just doing some Sally shit on camera to show that they're training hard. So, yeah. I have to say Sally shit's a, a new expression I haven't heard before, so I might, I might start adopting <laughs> that. The, the other name that um, comes to mind is actually another British guy, James Hollingshead. So yeah. I remember like two to three years ago, I trained with him a couple of times and the first time it was a real eye opener. And you know, we talked about someone like uh, you talked about earlier about the, the foot kicking down the door. That yep. was probably very much one of those experiences for me. Cause you're like, holy shit, this is what, this is okay. I understand now. Like you realize that that glass ceiling you had in your head, like it's just something you created for yourself. And it's the same thing I see in, fitness business and everything people create these false illusions of what they're potentially capable of and hold themselves back yeah yeah i can get that i would i would put ollie set up in the category definitely and actually on most of the uk bodybuilders that i see do their thing are definitely at a higher higher standard than anybody else that i see so so with your own training technique and style nick 
I would think it's fair to say it's slightly unique in terms of the way you set things up and your approach to some degree is almost like a blend of different uh, approaches. Like how has that come about obviously through your own personal experience, but how, how has that come to fruition almost? It's come together over years of trying everything and being going and trying to stand on each one of the hills and then dying with my shield on those hills and then deciding that, you know, on my next life, I'm going to try another one. <laughs> and eventually, after you've stood on enough of them and you figured out exactly what, what the weak spot was in your armor. Oh, hold on. Sorry. Um, when you've stood on those hills long enough and you knew you were there to witness the chink in your armor get exposed and then you get knocked off the hill, you end up learning eventually which hills to stand on and which ones not to. And by the end of it, you end up realizing that none of these hills were a good place to be. You're just trying to pick the best bad isolated option. And so after going and trying to dig deep into each one of them of like the main sectors of what like people are doing for their training and which ones are popular at what time, and then taking all the detractors, taking everything that they say seriously, taking the proponents, everything they say seriously, trying to weigh them, go through the experience of doing them, and then seeing how it works out. And then finding for yourself through experience what the holes of those things are, and then move forward by, you know, pulling out the things that aren't going to be the most helpful to you. And then you just keep on with the rest of the structure that you found that was helpful. Then over enough iterations of that, you come to a better place than you were before, which is definitely not gonna be the final destination because this is a further iterative process that happens through forever. As long as you're trying to continue to progress and get better at what you do, as long as there's still more iterations, you're gonna keep learning. There's gonna be more. But with each one of those iterations, you get a little bit closer to something that is holistically built with all of the foundations of everything else that you've done before that you knew worked, and then balancing off all of those characteristics against each other to build something that works with it all in tandem. And that's kind of where I ended up getting to this point now, where I had done, I, I've literally done everything. I've tried just about everything and gone through to find that what is going to work is going to work. And then you have to modulate some variables to make the thing that is going to work actually do so. And that's it. That's as simple as it is. It doesn't have to be all that much more complicated than that. And trying to use a specific branding title of what the considerations of that training is ends up leading you down a rabbit hole of trying to further specify into this one area of something that ends up excluding out all of the things that are good about everything else. And then you just double down and double down and double down into what you think is best. And then you don't actually take anything from anywhere else eventually. And then you end up becoming a meme culture of what it is that everybody else sees what you do because you can no longer produce results because you've gotten so far away from general principles that apply to everything because you look at every other method as an attack on yours which is something that happens everywhere, everywhere. And there's almost nothing that irritates me more than that in the bodybuilding space is the memifying of everything and necessarily having a check, a checkbox list of your beliefs about a thing 
that you need to unequivocally sign yourself onto for you to be accepted into the cult group of this certain type of thing within the industry, which ends up becoming people end up going to certain trainers, certain training programs, certain methodologies, because they have bought into it as if it's like a religion in treating it as such in defending it to the death, like it's a religion, instead of just looking at what the lessons are to be learned from them and then putting them together like a logical human being should take all the tools available to create the most holistic process that you could to get to where you need to go. So that's pretty much it. I, that's one of the things I really like about your approach in terms of programming with everything from exercise selection to volume reps, everything there's almost is like a, a cumulatively blend of like everything together. So there's all stimulus boxes are ticked rather than I think a lot of people tend to probably push very heavily either on like super high volume uh, sort of angle or like progressive overload. This is the only way where I think the reality is the same with you look at nutrition, like your body needs all three macronutrients, like your body probably needs all three, all, like all different training stimuluses to optimally progress. Yep. Um, you mentioned about dying on hills and I heard a story of you before, Nick, that apparently you squatted <laughs> every day. You knew this was coming. You squatted yeah. every day for a year. Yeah. Yeah. Every that I'll redact that to change that to, I squatted every training day. Okay. So not seven days a week for an entire year. No, but every training session that I did for over a year, yes, I did squat. And it wasn't intelligently done. <laughs> I will say that. I will admit to that where it was, instead of doing it on some sort of like Bulgarian squat style method or something like that, or trying to scale it based off of how I was feeling or what my recovery was like, or trying to match how much work I was doing for the squats and then changing things on my leg days to accommodate for wasn't really taking out any compound lifts to accommodate for it either. Didn't change the volume totals, didn't change how close to failure I was going. And the squats was a non-negotiable rest pause to 50 reps, no matter what. <laughs> Every session? Every session, yes. How, how uh, I don't even want to think how bad that was, but do you, do you <laughs> have to vary the weight loading across the week? I didn't, no. So what I would do is I would choose a weight that I knew that I could get for between 15 and 20 as a first fresh set and just work with that. And no matter what, even if I came in feeling terrible, if I chose a weight that was like a 15 to 20 repper, I'm going to get it. I'm going to be able to do it. It may just take a whole lot more out of me to do it. And it may take another rest pause or so to get it done, but I'm going to do it. And then over time, obviously, I would just increase the load on that. And then really, before I would increase the load, I would try to get the entire 50 done with three or less rest pauses. And then once I could get it in three, pretty easy, then I would up it by like a half a plate. So I would go from, I started off doing it with back squat. So I did it with 225 to start with the, the first goes. And then eventually after I could get that for three rest pauses fairly comfortably on a daily basis, then I brought it up to two and a half. And then after I could do that, I would bring it up to three. And then after that, three and a half. And then after that, I got to four. 
And then once I got there, I had to change it again because I was smashed, obviously. And I started doing goblet squats instead. So I got a little bit of a break there. And then after that, it was front squats. And then I did all that. And then I worked that up in the same kind of method all the way through there. And then by the end of that, I was just doing alternations between front and back squats. After that point, and then that ended up getting tailed off by me starting to do a five sessions a week of pulling <laughs> of a deadlift variation, one or the other, for five sessions a week. So I ended off one with a little bit of an overlap of daily squatting and then five sessions a week of pulling, which I did together for a couple of months. And then I moved on to letting the squat go and then did the deadlifting for five sessions a week and continue that for... I think probably eight months, almost a year. Yeah. Here's an interesting point. So do you think the, A, that's retarded and insane. And I, I please hope you have videos of that somewhere because I'd be fascinated to see this. And um, <laughs> like, do you think the repeated bout effect of almost consistently squatting and say doing pulling movements is why your technique is so good and you're so prolific at those movements? And now yes. you're almost reaping the rewards now in terms of your top end strength output because your body's used to smashing stupidly high reps of these weights anyway. So you've built up that tolerance through insanity uh, yep. to be able to do it at higher reps. So now you can just increase the load essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I would hundred percent say that. I would say that my skill specifically on the squat, I can owe that to that really long period of time that I was not, I was not giving myself enough time to forget. I wasn't, it was such a staple that it became like breathing. Squatting became so easy that it was like breathing. From repetition of doing it on a nearly daily basis at a fairly high volume over and over and over and over and over again for the period of a, of a year. Doing that 100% brought my skill level on the movement up by a ridiculous margin from where it was to start with. From where it was to start with before I did that, part of the impetus of me trying to do that is because my squat was terrible. It was awful, horrible. I was one of those people that back in the day, and I have some, some old college buddies that could, that could vouch for this, that there was that one point that I was like, I, squats just don't fit me. And deadlifts just don't fit me. That, that, so I'm just not, it's just not for me. It's why well, I'm not that great at them. And then like, I would try it. And then I would not do them well because obviously I wasn't doing them and I wasn't being honest with myself with how, how much I could actually do. And then I would just further convince myself that, no, nah, I'm just not built for it. I can't do it. So I started from there. I started there. And then I was like, no, screw this. This isn't, this isn't right. I need to figure this out. And the way I figured that out is you're going to go by trial by fire. This is you learning how to swim because your dad just kicked you in the back into the pool. That's this. You just throw yourself in the fire and then you figure it out. And I didn't give myself the option not to. And so I had to go through like the initial phases of this is terrible. I don't know what I'm doing. This doesn't feel good at all. But then all, all the while knowing I'm not going to back down, this is what I'm doing. So I had to figure out like, what are the problems? Why do I feel like I can't do this? And then instead of blaming it on my structure, 
I started going, well, what functions am I missing that is making this feel so terrible and have it look so bad? And so I started to work through and uncover all of those stones that needed to get overturned for me to figure out what functions I was lacking that held me back from being able to even do it properly. And then breaking through those, obviously you get to do things properly. Your ability to do the thing is that much better immediately. Your proficiency jumps a wicked amount when you actually just have the ability for your body to do the thing. And that was the initial. And then through the practice of it and just going over time and over time and over time, getting even more skilled. And then even with, I can give a little bit of credit to this unorthodox method of doing it every day with a rest pause is that I got really, really good at being able to do the pattern and replicate it within a very, very close margin of my, my normal, like an eight out of 10 execution, even while being dead, having nothing being at the end of like having a 15 rep load on my back and getting it to like 24, getting used to feeling like you're, li you're literally, you're going to pass out like now, but you're, you have no thoughts other than I'm standing, I'm going to squat and I'm going to come back to standing. And you learn how to do that in going through the skill and building the skill of replicability of the pattern while under extreme amounts of fatigue you end up having the muscular system be really robust in its ability to hold everything in place so that you don't end up compromising your form by that much of a degree. You have the mental fortitude to understand that when you think it's over, you have a whole hell of a lot more that you know you can do. You just have to decide that you're going to do it, which is another asset there. And then understanding just how far that goes, how long of a leash that that really runs for gives you me the ability for my squatting now today for me to go with a load that is something that I've never touched before and go well if I feel like I'm gonna die I probably have a couple more and still be comfortable with being able to do that the first time that I ever squatted eight plates aside I had ne never done it before ever but you know what I said I said I'm not I didn't say I'm gonna see how first one goes and then I got through the first one. I'm like, oh, we're, we're okay. That was really hard, but it's okay. And then rack it. No, I was like, I'm going to take this for six. This is what we're doing today. And then I just got under the bar and I didn't get six. I got three. But one, felt like I was going to get crumpled. Two, felt like I was going to turn into a lawn chair and I was going to pass out under the bar. Three, felt like I wasn't even in the room. Then I put it away. I was like, well, that wasn't so bad. I can... I can say that me going through being in that mental state and physical state together so frequently over a long period of time gave me the ability to be able to go there, recognize it and go, okay, there's more here than what every single sign is telling me that there is. So you have one of two choices. You can be, you can be weak today or you can go, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to squat it back up. And that's it. That, that's an interesting thought process as well. And actually the, the stupid part of my brain was, well, oh, maybe I should try this. This sounds like this could be interesting. <laughs> um, the, 
like also we talked about a repeated bout effect in terms of physically in terms of like the training the movement but almost like psychologically your brain being in that warped position nigh on daily of like we're pretty much dying you just get you just get used to that it's the same as you get acclimatized to certain stress from work or whatever like your body just adapts to everything and i guess you've forced an adaptation mentally in your head to be able to push yourself there and do you think that's something that came very much from that period yes yeah i had those same tools in place long before that that's why i was able to do it in the first place because those that same kind of mental state relative to the physical state like the ability to go there i already had for a long time but it was the context that was specific to the squat that i didn't have but because I already had the tool to be able to do that prior with other things, I could apply it into the squat and actually like, I had an idea of where I could go to and that formed my ability to actually like have the confidence to walk there. But then building a skill within being there after I got my foot in the door was me realizing what I could do with the squat, which came afterwards. But the tool to be able to do so came long before. I had that in, ingrained in me when I was, 12, 13 started uh, when I started sports because I was, I didn't, I didn't give, give up anything. And if I was going to, if I was going to die to do something, I was going to do it. And that's just the way that I thought. So I had that from the very, very beginnings of my athletic careers. And so I just applied that same thing into what I was doing with squats. And now today squatting is absolutely my favorite thing of all things to do in the gym. I call it my happy place even though it's very, <laughs> it's been a place of torture in the most, in the greatest of ways for a long time. It's my favorite. I love it. Out of interest, did your, I presume I know the answer to this, did your legs grow a lot from this approach? Uh, or not as much as you'd think? Not as much as you would imagine. No. Um, my, throughout that time, actually, my my quads they grew a bit specifically my quads grew a bit but not as much as you would think you would get from doing a rest pause on squats every day for a year if you were thinking if you were really trying to add it up and be like you'd be like like tom platts by the end you'd be like ben pikulski legs by the end like no no even by progressing from two plates to four plates doing that still no nope so Really what that was, wasn't as much of putting on tissue. It was really more about the pattern of squatting. Doing the thing of squatting and treating squatting itself as like its own separate sport is really what I was doing. And I was totally fine with the fact that my quads specifically weren't really growing a ton through doing that. I was training legs with normal volumes and still doing pretty similar things to that to that type of like squatting intensity on my leg days anyway, of which I've had two leg days in my rotation since like the very beginning of my training career. So I had always had that in, so they were still growing throughout that time, but not to the degree that you would imagine that it would just blow up. On the flip side though, when I had done the five deadlift sessions per week for a number of months, I had never, and I still to this day, have never had that much back development happen in one concentrated period of time, ever, ever. So that stands for that. 
what do you think the difference is between the two of those then? Because hypothetically, you would have thought it would have a similar effect. The bigger thing, I believe, is that when I was doing the deadlifting, I was a little bit more intelligent with how much I wanted to push on the volume for it. Where I wasn't doing a rest pause of deadlifting every day. It was doing between two and four sets of a pull within a, an undulating rep target and intensity target, obviously, between like relative exertion and the amount of actual load on the bar and slightly in variation as well, because it would be stiff legs, it would be conventional deads, and it would be uh, RDLs, as well as bent over rows that would be in there, which I wouldn't really count directly, but it was still lower back loading that was added as extra. So with those things in there, it was a little bit more of an intelligent undulation of those things to allow me to continue performing on them. And that would be where I would say the, the change was. If I was a little bit more, um, a little bit more lenient, I guess, on myself with the squatting. And I was trying to undulate and change things a whole lot more and use more of more of that type of a method instead of, nope, this is what's happening. This is what we're doing. And we're just progressing load through time and how many reps I could do per rest pause. If I did it a little bit differently, maybe I would have gotten more quad growth out of it, but I can't say for sure. My last question for you, Nick, before we wrap this up, obviously you train like an absolute lunatic because no one in the right mind would do a rest pause set on legs every day for a year. <laughs> like obviously I know what's happened with your hand recently or your thumb. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Have you had uh, many other issues in terms of injuries? And if not, how have you managed to navigate that obstacle course whilst having your lunatic approach? <laughs> um, so I haven't really had anything crazy happen. Like the, the thumb. Uh, so anybody that doesn't know, I crushed my thumb. Uh, on a reverse pec deck. So yeah, believe it or not, that's probably the first person to ever do that. But uh, so pec deck, uh, two horizontal handles, had my thumb on the inside of one, uh, dropped the stack and the two horizontal handles of which my finger was between them, just crushed the finger and it blew up like a grape. So that's what happened. And that's uh, five, six, six-ish weeks ago now that it happened. And up to this point, actually from two and a half-ish weeks ago, I had started being able to train again. And so up to this point now, I can do pretty much everything with it, even though it was a crush injury. So basically if you were to, you're imagining what it looked like on the inside of the finger, it'd be like if I put it underneath a steamroller, is basically what it looked like. Like it was all just bone shards and ground up soft tissue. But now at this point, which I'm very lucky to say after only a couple of weeks of having to take completely away from doing any like resistance training. I can deadlift with it. Like I can hold onto things and not have much of a problem. So it's pretty much fully there, even though the bone still has to regrow a little bit. Um, that's the biggest major injury I've had of other ones that are notable. I've had like some like tenderness issues from time to time, because that just happens from overuse of which I have had a history of doing to myself. So I've had overuse injuries where I've had like some quad tendonitis, some patellar tendonitis, uh, some difficulty with some like tenderness at the IT band at the, the lower leg, um, separated the SI a little bit. Uh, and that was a chronic issue for a while. 
Um, no muscle tears that I know of, really. Um, I had dislocated a rib or two, which never really got checked on by a doctor, but I had done that deadlifting and that was a whole lot of fun. I thought I tore a lap, but I was wrong. And then I ended up continuing to train with it. And then a couple weeks later, after it felt pretty okay, I deadlifted again and it did it again. So that was fun. But that time I finished the set, even though it did that. So um, what else? I've had some like radial nerve issues uh, in my in my shoulders and my arms, which is again from an overuse and from not having things properly adjusted for things, uh, mechanics at the shoulder, of which I have learned since. Um, I tore a right medial meniscus. That happened uh, three years ago, I think, which has never been repaired or worked on or opened up or anything. I just left it. So. And you still score plates on that. Yeah, yeah, without a problem. Meniscus, a meniscus injury like that isn't like a, a huge deal for that. As long as everything else is still intact, of which I'm pretty sure everything else is intact because I don't really have any other issues with that. Um, but actually, I tore that by doing a bodyweight squat at the end of my deload week where I had done nothing for an entire week. And before like crawling into bed, I was just stretching a little bit. And then I did a bodyweight squat and just like, bam. No, <laughs> of all times, that it happened like that. And then that's a, that's a sick irony. Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> to be fair, I, I thought I had something like that today. I was uh, you're talking about back squatting. I haven't back squatted for probably a year, and I had to film something for a YouTube video. And I was like, okay, I need to do this, and it literally felt so awkward. And I was at the bottom, and after I like unracked, re-racked the weight, I just felt my back pop, and I was suddenly like, you know, when you feel something go, and you're just waiting, is like, is that gonna hurt? And it was like, it's fine, but. Yeah, <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah, you're like, oh, uh oh, uh oh, oh wait, we're good. Yeah, it's, it's that delayed onset effect. You're like, you just wait for it to come. And there's nothing, hopefully. Yeah, yep, um, I know what that's like. So, thank you so much for your time today, Nick. We'll, we'll wrap that up there. For anyone to find out a bit more about you, see some of your training insanity, and also some of your methodology, where's the best place for people to find out about you? Instagram. Just my name on on Instagram has everything that that you would want to connect to me with. Uh, in my bio, so at Nick Gloff, just spelt exactly how it sounds. Awesome. As long as you don't pronounce my name as Golf, in that case, you will be wrong. It's G L O W F. Yes. Yeah. Good job. Easy peasy. And if you guys loved this episode, which I'm sure you did, please make sure you head back and listen to the previous episode I did with Nick. Uh, Nick is in, like, as you can tell, extremely passionate about what he does and leads by example and some are well worth following, so check them out. And really appreciate your time today, Nick. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure.